2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, as we've been cruising through this, uh, starting to get into this book, we've seen that there are issues happening between uh, Paul and the Corinthian church. Of course, we've talked quite a bit about the fact that they accused him of, of being fickle and not trustworthy, and he's been defending himself in ministry as he writes here. Well, now uh, another issue starts to come up that he's going to begin to address, and it'll come up several times as we go through 2 Corinthians, and it's... Uh, an issue that existed between Paul and the Corinthians uh, and between the leaders there in that church, some of the leaders. See, following Paul's ministry in many of the cities where he had gone and planted churches and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Lord and established works of God was this group known as the Judaizers. And they would come in and follow Paul and where he would had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, they would say, that's great. That message that Paul has taught is good and it's true. And that's great. Jesus has saved you by grace. But now if you really want to grow in this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you just need to add your obedience to the law of God. And they would uh, put the weight of the legal requirements of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant on, on God's people. And so to establish themselves in Corinth, what they had done is this. They had uh, come into town and they had said, hey, we've got letters of recommendation. We come here and, and here's my certificate of the authenticity of my ministry. Here's the people that are standing behind me as I come into Corinth and they recommend me as a leader. Did Paul give you any letters of recommendation when he came to town? And they just began to undermine the ministry of Paul and, and tell the Corinthians we're legit and Paul is illegitimate. Now, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but resist to just do a quick search on the internet, you know, Google, if I could get ordained online. <laughs> and you know what I found out was that for 1995, not only could I get ordained, but I could get a bachelor of religion. <laughs> And in fact, if I wanted to spend two more dollars, I could make it a master's degree. But the whole kit and caboodle, you could purchase a doctorate in divinity for just $23.95 with your ordination. You know, oh man, isn't that hilarious? Actually, as I was looking on the page, they actually had a, a list of ministers. And so I thought, well, I can't resist, man. I got to cruise through this roster of ministers and on the second page, I found a profile of one, and so I clicked on the profile, and here was this picture of a monkey. It said, Minister Frank Woolley. I thought, what a joke that you can go online and you can purchase your ordination or your letter of recommendation. And, you know, although it was a common thing in the, in the first century church that they would come with such letters, Paul certainly used that practice. There was plenty of times when they weren't legitimate things. And those who had come to Corinth, legitimate recommendations, those who had come to Corinth with this adding to the message of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the legalistic requirements of the law, I think they picked up their reference letters off the internet for $21.95. Now, you know, Paul used and sent letters. He sent letters with Timothy and Titus. He himself at one time delivered a letter from the Jerusalem council to explain their ministry. 
before his salvation, when he had sought to persecute followers of the way, followers of Jesus Christ, he even secured a letter from the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, to go to Damascus and to arrest Christians and to imprison them. And so letters of reference were not uncommon. It was a, a, a practice of the early church. But what these leaders were doing were calling into legitimacy, the, uh, or calling into question the legitimacy of Paul's ministry. So let's pick it up here. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of of human hearts. You know, as I read that, as Paul just, I sense the sarcasm in his voice. You kind of, you, you get that in 2 Corinthians, kind of this sarcastic tone from Paul, this cheeky little tone, but he's, he's also a very serious, really, really, you want a letter of recommendation from me? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation. See, the greatest uh, reference to the legitimacy of ministry is this, a transformed life. A transformed life. Paul's saying this. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus said, you know, you will know them by their fruits. And you know, when you think about this, you know, how is a life transformed? By a, a life is transformed by a ministry that leads people to behold Christ. By a ministry that removes legalistic hurdles of religion and teaches people to approach God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To trust the gracious and redemptive work of Jesus Christ by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so here's Paul, you know, hear Paul for a minute. You want a letter of recommendation he's saying? Well then fine, I have one. It's from Jesus. Jesus Christ wrote a letter and he recommended me and the letter is you. Your transformed lives are the seal of Christ's approval on my ministry that I did among you. My recommendation is not written. You know, Paul's saying, my recommendation is not written with pen and paper. It's not written with ink or notepad. No, it's written with the spirit of the living God on human hearts. You know, before in past times, God wrote on stone tablets with his finger, but now he writes on human hearts by the spirit of God. You know, Christ is writing his letter on your heart. It's kind of a neat thing to think about that. He is writing his letter on your heart. You know, I would say this, you should, you should consider yourself employed by God. Because your lives form the language in which the spirit of God addresses this world. God is making his appeal to Gibsons through you. God is making his appeal to the Sunshine Coast through you. God is making his appeal to this world through you. He's communicating a message through his church. Be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our message. That was Paul's message in Corinth. And as the people heard it with ear, they heard that message of Jesus with their ears. 
that Paul proclaimed. And as their eyes observed the life of Paul, those Corinthians with their stony, rebellious hearts to the things of God, as they heard that message, the Spirit of God worked upon their hearts and they were born again and they were given fleshly human hearts rather than hearts of stone. See, Paul's saying the test of ministry is changed hearts and lives. Not press releases, not statistics. You know, you think about religion. Religion brings external obligation, but Jesus brings indwelling life, the presence of his spirit. And so Paul is saying, look, they want to talk about legal things and letters and this and that. I don't want to talk about outside human life. I want to talk about something that happens in the very depths of the human heart and soul when Jesus touches a stony heart. And when the spirit of God comes in, the hardness of heart melts away and life is brought in the name of Christ. You know, remember for a moment the condition of your heart before Jesus invaded your life? Do you remember what your heart was like before Jesus? Do you remember? Do you remember the hardness? Do you remember the stony condition? You know, it, it may as well have been a tombstone, that heart of yours, because it was sentenced to death by sin and by the law. Now, the Old Testament prophets spoke of, an, of the idea of God's law being written on our hearts, but they also spoke of God at some time in the future replacing hearts of stone with hearts of human flesh. Here's one from Ezekiel 36, 26. It says this, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Isn't God's work awesome? That he would work in our stony hearts to soften them. You know, it's, it can happen for us even as followers of Christ, of those who have been born again, that, that at a time our, our, our hearts just harden to the things of God. You know, and I would ask you today, you know, what, what is the condition of your heart this morning? Is it cold and stony to the spirit of God? Is it hardened by this world to the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, as, as David said, may he create in us clean hearts. May he restore to us the joy of our salvation. And so Paul says, you are my letter. Verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. You know, Paul was confident, very confident as you read this letter, but he says, uh, my confidence is not in myself. He trusted Paul's confidence. He, he trusted the work of the Holy Spirit as he proclaimed Christ to bring forth fruit in people's life. And of that happening, he was assured, he was persuaded, but it was a conviction that was not rooted in a self-confidence, but it was a conviction that was rooted in a great Jesus dependency in Paul's life. You know, as it's thinking about it, this world has a love affair with self-confidence. Trust in your own abilities, in your qualities, in your judgments. Be self-reliant. You know, I'm a man. I like to be self-reliant. I like to provide. 
And that's good. A man should do that. And it's good to be confident in your abilities. But you know what God is seeking to accomplish in us? The Holy Spirit is working to produce and the word of God is working to produce in us always a greater Jesus dependency. A greater dependency on Jesus. See, the word of God and the Holy Spirit want to, tr- want to crush your trust in this world and create in our lives a greater Jesus dependency. See, your money will fail you and your health will fail you and people will fail you, and your children will fail you, and your parents will fail you, but Jesus never fails. Your good looks will fail you. The NHL will fail you. The NHLPA will double fail you. The Canucks will fail you. Sports will, but Jesus never fails. You know, religion will fail you. Human promises will fail you. Leaders fail, armies fail, governments fail, even churches will fail you. But Jesus never, ever, ever fails. You know, I, we could just go on and on and on and on. Because nothing is for certain except Jesus. And the word of God and the spirit of God is looking and working to produce in us greater Jesus dependency. And that's what this chapter is about, about a life being transformed. Paul says this again in verse four, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Charles Spurgeon said this, I like this. Brethren, if Paul is not sufficient of himself, what are you and what am I? Where are you? Do you indulge in the dream of self-sufficiency? Be ashamed of your folly in the presence of a great man who knew what he said and who spoke under the direction of the Spirit of God and wrote deliberately, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, Our sufficiency is from God. Let us practically enjoy this truth. We are poor, leaking vessels. And the only way for us to keep the pitcher full is to be under the perpetual flow of boundless grace. Then despite its leakage, the cup will always be full to the brim. See, our sufficiency comes from God. Our sufficiency comes from Christ. And there is a particular area where God has made you sufficient. You're a minister of the new covenant. And today for just 1995, CTK will print you your own certificate of authenticity. But wait, there's more. (laughs) Today for the first 40 people you know, we'll print you two certificates. But wait, there's more. We'll throw in a coffee cup too. (laughs) Look, you are ministers of the new covenant and your sufficiency is not from some certificate. Your sufficiency is not even from you. But your sufficiency is from God who has made you sufficient through the power and working of the Holy Spirit. He has made you a minister of the new covenant. Now, you know, if you just look up the word minister in the dictionary... 
It'll define it as a member of the clergy or a head of a government department like the minister of defense. But let me give you the biblical definition of a, of, of a minister. It's the word diakonos. We get the word deacon from that word. It speaks of a slave, but it's distinguished from a different type of slave that we often see in, in the New Testament. That's the word doulos, which speaks of a bond slave. Someone who is a bond slave is, is worried about, you know, their relation. They view themselves in relationship to their master. But this deacon, this servant is one who views himself in relationship to the work that he has been given. See, you have been given a work, a mission by your master that you are called to work out. We are ministers, servants. And in that role, we minister and we serve the work of the new covenant. The work of the new covenant. You know, the minister, you think about our cabinet ministers in in Ottawa there. The minister of national defense looks after our military Sometimes he gets to make really cool entrances to different events. The minister of finance, you know, he's responsible for those cool new $20 bills. The minister of foreign affairs looks after the international interests of Canada. You know, the minister of the Canadian Northern Economic Development Agency, I don't know what that minister does. The minister of the Economic Development Agency of Canada for the regions of Quebec, I don't, I, I don't understand the work of that minister. The Minister for the Federal Economic Development Initiative for Northern Ontario. I, I don't know what that minister does, but I'm glad I don't live in Northern Ontario. See, see the, it's a problem if you don't know what a minister does. Because you're called to be a minister. We are ministers of the new covenant. So what does that mean? Well, the biblical word for covenant describes an arrangement made between one party... The one party has total power and he establishes a covenant and the other party can accept or reject the covenant. They can enter in or not enter in, but the covenant cannot be altered. And we know from the word of God that that God has offered man a covenant, a covenant relationship. But this isn't, again, this isn't two parties coming together on equal terms. God offered a covenant to mankind And a man or a woman can accept it or reject it. Now this covenant presents the terms by which we have relationship with God. That's what the new covenant's about. It's it's the terms by which we have a relationship with God through what Jesus Christ has done. Now Paul tells us some details about this new covenant. That it's not of the letter but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the spirit gives life. And when he talks about the letter, he's referring, we know, to Old Testament law. God's law is good. God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And they came through the Old Covenant. And there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. It's just that they don't give us any power to actually be obedient to them, to fulfill them in our lives, or to change our hearts. They just tell us what right and wrong is. They tell us what to do but not how to do it. Now, Paul says that the letter kills because it establishes, the law establishes and exposes our guilt before God. Thoroughly and completely, the law kills us. But when we come to faith in Christ Jesus, 
When we enter into a new covenant relationship, we are given the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't do away with God's law on our heart, but he completes it and he fulfills it. And he gives spiritual life so that the law of God can be fulfilled in our hearts. And this new covenant, it's our work. It's our ministry. We are ministers of the new covenant. We serve the new covenant. Now, Paul's going to build on some of the things that we've been seeing in 2 Corinthians, encouraging us about this ministry that we've been given. And in the the chapters that come, he's just going to go off. They're great chapters. This one kind of lays the groundwork. And so let me remind you what Paul's already told us about ministry and what some of the things we've been talking about. He told us this, firstly, chapter one, that there are two keys to being a successful minister. The first one is this, compassion for people. You got to have compassion for people. The second was confidence in God. And then Paul saw, then he he shared as we talked about last week that, that he was motivated by love in his actions. And he communicated to the church the importance of forgiveness. That a believer who chooses not to forgive is a believer who has made a decision to live a defeated life. You cannot be unforgiving and know the triumph of Christ. We saw that last week. You cannot cling to unforgiveness and know the triumphant Christian life. And he said, if you choose unforgiveness, Satan's gained ground on you. He's taken advantage of you. He's gained ground in your life. And then we saw that right here at the start of this chapter, that God is seeking to remove people's stony hearts and to give them hearts of flesh, human hearts. Now, throughout the whole thing, Paul has been stating confidence in God to do this work. This is actually, this is the third chapter in a row where Paul has stated his total confidence in the Lord to do this. Chapter one, he said, I'm confident in the promises. They're yes, and they are amen, and I take hold of them, and they define my life and what I do. Chapter two, he said, I thank God. Why? Why? Because he always leads us in triumphal procession. Always. Always, always, always. And through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. See, Paul could thank God because it it sprang from this deep-seated conviction that God was always working in and through his life. That the Holy Spirit was always bringing forth fruit as he proclaimed Christ. And of that, he he was fully persuaded. He was... Persuaded that regardless of the appearance of any setback or opposition, the gospel work proceeds triumphantly, convinced. And in chapter three here, he says that he had such confidence, that we have such confidence, sorry, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Paul was confident, but, but his confidence was not in himself. He trusted in the work of God as he proclaimed Christ. See, you know, we can be confident in the work that we have been given. He's given us a ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. You're a minister of the new covenant, and we need to be confident in the ministry that we have been given. And so there's some things we need to know about this new covenant ministry and Four of them. We'll point them out as we go through this chapter. Verse seven. Or the first one is this. The glory of this ministry 
surpasses what previously existed. Listen to verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at the face of Moses because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what was once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Firstly, Paul did this. He called the old covenant a ministry of death. Wow, that's depressing. Glad we don't have that ministry. (laughs) The old covenant was called the ministry of death because of what it did. It condemned people. It condemned them to die because of their sin. Paul says it was still glorious. I mean, you, you go to the pages of the Old Testament and it was glorious. You know, I was reading there, Exodus 19 through 34 recounts the whole giving of the law. How twice Moses was given those tablets. You know, he smashed them that first time. And it was glorious when the Lord came to establish his covenant with the people of Israel. You know, they were commanded, nothing is to touch the mountain. Not an animal, not a person, nothing. Because if they touch it when I descend, they will die. You know, there was thunder and there was lightning and there was loud trumpets and there was smoke. And the Bible tells us that mountain trembled. When the time finally came for Moses and the 70 elders of the people of Israel to ascend up the mountain, the scripture says that they saw God. Now, I don't understand. I don't think no man sees God and lives. So I don't know how they saw God and what it exactly looked like. But it says they saw under his feet was pavement like sapphire. Cloud covered the mountain. The appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. And Moses went up on that mountain and the Lord gave to him the law and the Lord proclaimed to Moses on that mountain his name. See, the coming of the law was glorious. But Exodus 34 tells us that when Moses had been speaking to God, something amazing happened that he didn't even realize was happening. When he came down off that mountain to tell the people the law, his face reflected the glory of God. Like a mirror, he was shining forth the glory of God. And so he would cover his face with a veil. Now, the reason Moses would cover his face with a veil was not so that the people wouldn't see the glory. It wasn't to stop them from seeing the glory of God, but he did not want them to see that the glory was fading as he left the presence of God. In fact, it's actually a picture, Paul says, as to the old covenant, that it has a fading glory, that the glory of the new covenant surpasses the old covenant because it doesn't fade like the old covenant. And so Paul says this, he says, the ministry of the spirit is more glorious. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. It's actually gonna come up on the screen. It says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages 
would be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches that mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, the old covenant and its ministry brought law and it brought death. But this new covenant ministry brings spirit and it brings life. The law brought condemnation, but the spirit brings righteousness. And the old is passing away, Paul says, but the new is here to stay. The new covenant is glorious. And we've been made ministers of it. It's superior to that which existed. You know, I was was thinking about it. I was just thinking, you know, it's kind of like gotten a new car in a sense. We bought a new car a few years back. It doesn't feel new anymore. (laughs) You know, things aren't working. You used to have all these cool features. (laughs) No, some of the features still work, but the, the suspension's just not quite right. Pulls a little to the right. You know, people have dinged it in parking lots. And this thing that used to bring me so much joy is, has faded away. And I think I need a new car. (laughs) But you know, like when you buy a new car, there's, there's all these new features and things to play with. and, And guys really like that. And the new covenant is kind of like that. It's got features that never wear out like a car. You get to describe, oh, wow, I didn't know that did that. Oh, wow, that's cool. Oh, that seat, that feels good. You know, all these different things about the new covenant that we are constantly discovering because the glory of the ministry that we have been given surpasses that which previously existed. Now, the next thing Paul says you need to know about the new covenant ministry is this, that it's open and it's bold in its character. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Paul says, because of this hope, because of the, the glorious covenant relationship that we have with the Lord, because of this glory, Paul says, we can be very bold. Don't you wish you were more bold for the gospel? Don't you wish you were more bold for the gospel? telling people, proclaiming Jesus, talking about the life and work of the spirit in your heart, proclaiming to them that they can have a relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of God's grace that is offered to them, to proclaim to them that God's not angry, but that he's made a provision, that that he's planned a rescue, that he's gone out, he sent his own son, To reveal his love to humankind. See, Paul says we are very bold about this. The old covenant, it was restrictive in its nature. Even a man like God had to put a, like Moses, a man of God like Moses had to put a veil over his face. But we, it's open for us. 
We draw near to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We can be bold in prayer. We can be bold in coming into the presence of God. We can be bold in sharing Christ with others because it's good news. It's a ministry of reconciliation. Moses didn't want anybody to see what was happening in his life. He did not want them to see that the glory of God was fading. You know, a bold man doesn't put a veil over his face. But the new covenant's glory isn't fading away. In fact, you know, you might say that it's going to increase. Jesus is coming again. Every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The new covenant, it is increasing in its glory. Now Paul says in verse 14, But their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Paul's talking about the Jews, people of Israel. In in Paul's day and, and in our day, most of the Jewish people are unable to see that the glory of Moses has faded. Has faded in comparison to uh, the glory of Jesus Christ and what we have in him. You know, if they could have lifted the veil off Moses' face, they would have seen that the glory was fading. But now Paul says it's not over just over Moses' face, but it's come over their hearts. They're veiled. They can't lift it or they would see Christ and be saved. Thus, they still believe that Moses is superior to Jesus. But verse 16 says this, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You know, you read, read the account of Moses going into the presence of God and there was a point, you know where the veil was removed in Moses' life? When he would come to meet with the Lord, then he'd take it off and he'd speak face to face with God as one speaks with his friend. He'd remove the veil until he came out and when he had came out, Exodus 34 says, and when he had came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, he'd put the veil back on. But the veil can be taken away in Jesus Christ. It's pretty wild to watch what's happening in our world right now, don't you think? I mean, I, I, was, I was glued to the news. The last, last few weeks, I've been glued to the news with what's happening in the Middle East and what's gone on with the UN this week and what's happening in Palestine and with the people of Israel and you know, it's hard to understand all the inner workings of the whole thing. I'm not, not going to get political this morning. I got super strong opinions on these things. But, but I would remind us this. I would remind us of this. And it's important as the church that we remember this. That the scripture tells us that we are indebted to the Jewish people. That they're the olive tree broken off. And we have been grafted in. And the scripture says, do not despise the root because you too can be broken off and they can be grafted back in. And so, you know, I would say this, God is unfolding his prophetic plan. And the scripture tells us that the world is going to turn against the nation of Israel. 
And the scripture tells us that we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. See, there's only one solution. It's definitely not the UN (laughs) for the Middle East. It's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ and the establishment of his kingdom. And so we need to be praying. We have been given the ministry of the new covenant. And if anything, what's happening in the world provides for us many open doors to talk about how you've put your hope in the kingdom of God and not in human government. How you've put your hope in King Jesus and the salvation that you've received in him and how he has brought peace and hope to your heart and your life. Well, Paul says there's one more thing that we need, or two more things we need to know about new covenant ministry. Verse three says this. There's freedom in this ministry. Verse 17, sorry, verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, Moses only had the freedom to lift that veil off his face in the presence of God. But us, we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You know, wherever you go, there is the kingdom of God. In your home, in your workplace, in your family, in this community, you take with you and carry with you that which Moses could only have in the tent of meeting, the presence of Almighty God. And our freedom is to take that presence with us wherever we go. We have freedom from the power of sin. We can be slaves to righteousness rather than slaves of freedom, slaves of sin. We have freedom in our worship. We have freedom to draw near to God. We have freedom to come to the place of prayer. We have freedom. That is the ministry of the new covenant. And then there's the transforming power of this ministry. Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Boy, if there's one verse in this passage that needs to grip your heart, this is the one. We all have unveiled faces, Paul says. This is the property of not just the pastor or church leaders or people with certificates. This is the property of not just a chosen few people, but it's for all. We all have unveiled faces as we come to the Lord through the person of Jesus Christ. And there's intimacy with God because it's an open relationship. There's intimacy with God and there is a transforming power to live for Jesus Christ. Paul says this, we behold the glory of the Lord. The idea in the language is this, it's like we look at, we, it's like we behold God's glory, it's kind of like looking in a mirror. It's like you look in a mirror and you see yourself. It's like as we come to the Lord, we behold him. We look at him like we're looking at ourselves in a mirror. And what happens is, is that we are transformed. There's a metamorphosis, a change in nature. But it's not the change that religion brings and outside conformity it's, it's a change that happens from the inside out. Now, there's something about transformation. It's a process, isn't it? None of us have arrived. Sometimes it's a little slower than I'd like. Sometimes it surprises me. Sometimes I wonder, come on, Lord. But we are being transformed. 
going through a metamorphosis and we are being changed into an image. Paul says the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. See, man was originally created in the image of God, but that image was distorted by the fall. And now it is God's desire and it is God's purpose to restore back in you the image of God. And it happens as you look at the glory of Jesus Christ. As you behold him. As you behold him. That's the whole key to the transformed life. Beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we behold him, he moves us from glory to glory to glory. This continual progression. So Paul was convinced. I always move forward in triumphant glory in Christ Jesus. And this glory will not fade, but it will increase in your life as you contemplate Jesus Christ. As you behold, think of Moses who reflected the glory of God. He reflected the glory of God, but you and I, we radiate the glory of God. We radiate it as we behold Jesus Christ. And it's a work that's accomplished by the spirit of God. You know, with these last words, I would say Paul's emphasizing two things. The first one is this, that this access to God and his transforming presence is ours by the new covenant. And because it's by the new covenant, we are given the spirit of God. We have been given the spirit of God. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? But the second thing is this. We've been given access to God. And the second thing is we have been given a work. The ministry of the new covenant. And this work of transformation really happens when God's people allow God to work in their hearts and in their lives. It happens by the spirit of the Lord. You know, I've strived and strived in my flesh to be transformed at different times. But it's not the effort or will of man that transforms a heart. See, we don't achieve or, or earn some spiritual transformation. But we are transformed as we behold the glory of God like we're looking in a mirror, drawing near to Jesus Christ. We simply put ourselves in the place where we sit at Jesus' feet and we let the Spirit of God do His work. See, you won't overcome by an inward struggle, but you will overcome by an upward look. By the grace of the Lord Jesus. You know, give up the struggle, church. Give up the fight. Relax in the all-powerful nature of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Look on his face. Behold him. Spend time in his presence. And at his feet, and he will transform you. He will conform you into him, his image. You do the beholding, he'll do the transforming. You know, the thing about that is there's no shortcuts, is there? There's no shortcuts. You do the beholding, he does the transforming. As I was sitting in my office this morning, I just heard that. Christmas song playing. Oh, come, let us adore him. One of the lines is, come and behold him. That's the, 
That was the Christmas message. That's what the Christmas story was all about. Beholding the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And as you do, he will transform you. You know, there's a danger for us. It's God's people. It's the lure of legalism. It's still with us like it was for the Corinthian church. We must guard our hearts because it's not legalism and law that will transform us, but it's the spirit of God as we behold the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is leading us forth triumphantly and glorious. That's not some vain human confession. It's the truth of God's word. Let's pray this morning. Worship team, come on up here. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. You are the glorious Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth. You sustain all things by your word. You are, Jesus, the, vi- the, the image of the invisible God. I thank you, Jesus, that we know what our Father in heaven is like because we behold you. You reveal our Father to us in heaven. Jesus, we thank you today that we draw near to God because of you, because of your work, because of all that you have done. We thank you, Jesus, that you have committed to us a ministry, that it's open, that we can be bold, that it's transforming, that it has increasing glory, that it comes with freedom. We thank you for those things, Jesus. We pray, Jesus, that you would fill us with a boldness of heart to proclaim you, to proclaim you, King Jesus, to proclaim your forgiveness, to proclaim your love, to proclaim your grace. Lord, we thank you that we know that the sufficiency does not come from ourselves, but it comes from your spirit who has made us sufficient. We praise you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.